Welcome to Central Queensland Region's Leading and Learning Podcast. These are informal conversations between leaders about educational issues and initiatives. We share them to inspire and inform you so that you may have a greater influence through your instructional leadership. of the land across central Queensland on which we play, learn and work. I respect and honour Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander elders past, present and emerging. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander educators listening. I recognise the stories, traditions and living cultures of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people on this land and commit to building a brighter future together. Hey, welcome. I'm Trudy Graham, your host for the show. I'm an Assistant Regional Director in Central Queensland based in Rockhampton. And for this episode, I'm really delighted to introduce Nairi Hutton. Nairi is the Principal Advisor for Restrictive Practices and you work across the region, Nairi, but based in Rockhampton. Yes. So welcome to um, the podcast. It's great to have you. And in the typical CQ style, let's do a one-word barometer check-in and our conversation start. And Nairi, what's the most rewarding part of your job? When I'm actually doing presentations and I see people nodding and then it's like it appears that they're having aha moments and they see the relevance to their own practice and then come up at the end and say, oh, I just want to check if this is okay to do. So actually, you can see that thought process going straight away. Yeah, how exciting. It is actually, yeah. And and exciting to have you as a part of the episode today, a part of the podcast. Um, We're going to talk the restrictive practices procedure. Awesome. Yeah, and uh, I think uh, the most rewarding part of my work would be visiting schools and particularly when we get into classrooms and see the impact of school improvement work that uh, principals and leadership teams are working so hard at and then you actually see the evidence of the impact of their work in classrooms with students yeah do class visits so Nairi really thought it was a good time to have the conversation about restrictive practices earlier in the year I had Fleur Watson who was lead principal in central Queensland in term one And she gave us a great overview of all the different policies and procedures with the student discipline. But we're really narrowing down on the restrictive practices work. So let's let's get into it and make a start. So where where would you like to start with this conversation? Okay, well, I did listen to Fleurs at the beginning of the year and I thought that was awesome to have that overview of all the reviews and changes. The interesting thing about the restrictive practice is that there's nothing actually changed in the Education Act. So the Education Act is the same. Um, The only thing that's different is that we now have a standalone restrictive practice procedure and also the um, Human Rights Act has come out. So the Queensland Human Rights Act 2019 came out in January this year and it's so important for schools to know what their roles and responsibilities are within making sure that their practices align with the Human Rights Act and the Education Act. So, yeah, I think that's really important that they do have that restrictive practice procedure understanding. Yeah, and I remember hearing uh, Dr Natalie Swain speak around the reason why it was now 
a standalone procedure, being that separate to anything to do with behaviour. And that was a really um, distinct point she made, that it's a not a behavioural response. And I'm sure you're probably going to get into that. So yeah. <laughs> so that's that's the new bit, isn't it? That it's now a new a standalone procedure. So it's a clarity. It's clarity around the procedure. Um, and that highlights the understanding that it isn't about behaviour, it's about safety. So it's not behaviour management, it's risk safety management. And I think that's a bit of a mind shift for some people because we have seen it as, you know, compliance or making sure that our students do what we tell them to do rather than thinking, if I do this, this is because there's going to be harm to that child or harm to somebody else straight away, not the child's not doing what I'm telling them to do. I try to really make that point when I'm presenting about it's not about compliance, so it's about safety. It's about making sure that our kids, our students, but also our staff are safe. It's a procedure that does ensure the safety of everyone all involved, like the individual student, other students yeah. and staff. Yeah, it's, yes, absolutely. It's not... Um, you know, when I do the presentation to schools or to groups of people, it's not all about the student. While it is all about the student, it's we are looking at the safety of staff. You know, we don't want our staff going to school and getting bitten or kicked or punched or things like that. So it's about making sure that we understand the procedure and when it is necessary, if at all, to actually restrict someone's rights. And that is about safety of individuals or other people. Um, yeah, I've, I also, you know, really try to make a point about it's not about property damage. You know, we can replace property. We can't replace kids or, uh, you know, we don't want to add trauma to students that are already tra traumatised through their actions. To me, working through the procedure over the last oh, nine months, it's been really clear about um, the message that we are trying to bring to our staff that it is about safety. I notice here in your notes though around the links with the student code of conduct. So what what do we need to take into consideration in this space? Um, well with the student code of conduct that's really clear and precise about um, individual circumstances. You know there's no blanket responses to behaviour if you know a student does behaviour A, there's no well. Here's the consequence. You know, for example, if a student swears at an adult, they're not automatically going to be suspended. Suspended. So there's no mandatory sentencing. I like to say, and when we're looking at the restrictive practice policy or procedure, we have to be mindful that there's no blanket response. So you can't, um, you know, our what if questions. I make sure that people really know that it's all contextualised takes into account the individual person, um, the individual circumstances, as in the environment that they're in. You know, just because we say, well, you can, you know, uh, stop a child from running across a, uh, a highway, like a preppy, that's quite acceptable, but totally different if a 17-year-old's just about to run across the road because, you know, they've got road sense and things like that. So it's really important that individual circumstances are considered... Yes, there's no blanket response. You can't say, oh, well, you can use restrictive practices in this instance, 
but you can't in this because something's changed in that environment. It might be the person dealing with it. It might be the student, like the age of the child. It might be the safety aspect, as in, you know, it's different for somebody running across a four-lane highway to uh, a student running across or out of the school grounds in a small country town where cars are very limited coming down that street. So, yeah, individual circumstances, not just of the child, but the actual situation, yeah. the place has to be taken into account. Now, you've posed some really great questions here in terms of what we should be considering or reflecting on. When we think about restrictive practice, sometimes we think of just that full-on physical restraint, but there's lots of different types. And we have to be mindful that, is it the least restrictive thing we could be doing? So to get the same outcome, is it the least restrictive thing? And if there's a less restrictive measure that we could be taking, that's what we need to be taking, not going straight for um, the use of a restrictive practice. Um, And is it reasonable in all the circumstances? So that goes back to, you know, stopping a preppy running out onto a road is totally different to stopping a um, 17-year-old or a teenager going out into the road or leaving my classroom that's, you know, straight onto a, a highway. Um, so, for example, like Miriam Vale, you know, they're on a highway where trucks and that go past. So that might be, depending on the circumstances, acceptable to um, stop a preppy going out there. But then if a year 10 girl wanted to leave the school grounds, I wouldn't need to necessarily do that. I'd have a different process around that. Um, so, yeah, making, you know, in our heads, it's about least restrictive and reasonable in all the circumstances. Yeah. Did you want to talk about the different types of restrictive practices for us? Yeah. So the procedure goes through six. Um, So we have seclusion, physical restraint, containment, mechanical restraint, chemical restraint and clinical holding. When we talk about seclusion, basically that's a um, a student in an area. So it doesn't have to be a four-walled classroom. It can be an area that um, they reasonably think that they cannot get out of or leave and that no adults with them. So that can't be a planned response. You can't just plan that in your like an individual behaviour support plan. Um, a physical restraints when we actually, you know, as I said earlier, sometimes we think of it as that um, full on, you know, arms across the chest and holding a student. Whereas it can be simple things like grabbing a student's hand or um, you know, a child doesn't want to come back in off the playground and we get them off the monkey bars and take them back in. So that's actually restricting their right to freedom. So it brings up a lot of questions or reactive questions for people. Um, and I can work through them, you know, with the person so they actually can understand it. But it's about looking at different ways to manage the, the situation. And then containment, that can be a short-term strategy, um, on an individual behaviour support plan and it's about what are we doing in that short term to actually reteach or teach the student more acceptable ways to manage behaviour and that's always with an adult so they're engaged in learning with an adult. Um, Mechanical restraint, that would be things like um, you could have, you know, um, somebody in a, that needs to transition, um, they're in a like a wheelchair or a, even a, a stroller um, and for fatigue and they need to be transitioned from one area to another. But we put the brakes on when they're in the classroom so they can't move or leave a safety belt on so they can't actually move out of that 
um, mechanical device. So that's actually uh, restrictive practices that we can't do because it's more about managing behaviour rather than safety. Mm-hmm. Chemical restraint, you don't see this so often that that's um, administering a mood-altering drug um, to in line with a uh, behaviour. And that, you know, it's not about EpiPens or things like that that are life-saving, but it's, uh, I just had a case recently where a student was in out-of-home care. They wanted the carers, the psychiatrist had actually prescribed this drug to be given to this child if they were escalating. And the carers wanted to know if we could do that, the school could do it. And we can't because it's not a, we're not a, you know, give as needed mm-hmm. sort of system. Um, so we can, you know, like Ritalin and things like that, we can actually, if they're prescribed and they're a routine drug, we do that, but not just as needed. And then clinical holding. So that's when we're talking about, you know, central health care and that goes through a health care plan. And that can be, you know, short term or long term, but that involves our Department of Education nurses and then written down on a health care plan. So where do we stand if a parent is actually saying it's okay? Good question, actually, because I do get that. Um, and I sort of liken it to, you know how parents joke when they come in and say, oh, you know, just give them a smack if they, you know, done the wrong thing or, you know, works at home, that sort of stuff. We don't do that. You know, we don't just give a smack because the kid's not behaving. So just the same with any device or whatever restricted practice we can't do it just because a parent says it's okay and because you know like nine times out of ten it might be okay depending on what it is but then that tenth time that we do something somebody could get injured and then we've got nothing to stand on like we're not keeping ourselves safe we're not keeping the child safe so definitely just because somebody you know a parent says yep do this we don't do that we don't follow that yeah now what about the staff training when this uh, procedure first came out uh, at the beginning of the year lots of schools wanted to know well, where do we get the training you know we want training can we still get this training um, and they thought that was my role maybe but with training we know from research that once somebody is trained they're more likely to use that skill um, rather than use all the positive proactive preventative measures that they've got in their toolkit and I know from personal experience back in, I think, 2008, 2007, when I was working in Mount Isa with disengaged kids and suspended kids from the six primary schools, that once I was actually trained, I did use it. And I look back on that time now and think, oh, you know, there was other things I could have done rather than doing that. If people want to be trained now, it's up to the principal to source a trainer, so we don't recommend anyone at the moment. And they have to have an identified need within their school to show that there is rationalisation or justification that they need that training. And it isn't about blanket, let's get everybody trained. It's about you know making sure that we're training the best people that need it. But also, you know, do we really need it? You know, aren't where our going back to even the school improvement hierarchy, that positive culture for learning, you know. Restraining someone flies in the face of that. Mm. You know, we we don't want that happening, and we don't want um, unless it's a safety thing. When we're talking about physical restraints, there's no low. There's no such thing as a low or no risk 
restrictive practice, as soon as I go in to restrain someone, that's when the risk actually increases of either myself getting hurt or the child getting hurt by, you know, like me, them kicking me or pinching me or biting me or whatever. It's a myth about, oh, well, let's get my staff trained because then everyone will be safe. What part has the Deloitte review had in this space? If you haven't read the Deloitte review, which was back in 2017, the executive summary is really easy to read. Like, and it has, at the end of each part of it, it has recommendations. So 5.3, the recommendations were about um, education needing to identify what a restrictive practice is because there was the, you know, the, there wasn't much clarification um, with staff on knowing what it was. So we needed to identify what restrictive practices were and then our aim is to reduce or eliminate them. Because when we think about it, using a restrictive practice on someone actually causes impact for the staff member, but also impact for the student. Um, and we don't sometimes think about the impact it has on, you know, yourself. Because I think back on some practices that I've seen, I think back to, you know, one practice I saw and I thought, oh, why didn't I say something back then? Because that was wrong what they did. So that still has an impact, you know, 10 years later. I think about that and I think, oh, I was that child's voice and why didn't I say, you know, you shouldn't do that? So I think this this procedure actually gives a voice to probably staff that think, oh, hang on, that's not good practice. Um, because remembering we are the adults and we do need to make sure that we are speaking up for our students, even though that is quite challenging and confronting. So the Deloitte review, yeah, reduce or eliminate the need for it, but we needed to identify what they were first. And also we needed to monitor the use of them because as we know, look on one school, there's nothing that actually says use of restrictive practices. So what's been the focus of your role then? My first focus is to inform, like unpack the procedure with different groups, obviously principals first. You know, this year's been so different that it's sort of now becoming more apparent how important that is, that principals know their roles and responsibilities in line with this procedure. So we're probably doing a bit of a catch-up with that. Earlier on, I did cluster meetings with GOs and um, started doing the middle leaders, so that includes hoses and DPs. And then lots of schools have actually asked me to present at their staff meetings, either virtually or in face-to-face which I found really powerful in the sense that everybody's hearing the same message and it's not being filtered down. So that's good. It does raise a lot of questions for staff, though, because of that fear of, well, what do we do then? If we can't do that, what do we do? And that's just about going back to, you know, building those capable and confident people that know that they actually do do a lot of good things and there are other strategies that they can call on or develop that they don't need to actually use restrictive practices. That must be pretty powerful work when our teachers and school leaders realise that they do have an amazing skill set that they can deploy. And I guess too, Nori, there's a piece in that thinking ahead of the game, like what all the possibilities and being conscious of those possibilities that and alternatives that they can deploy yeah and doing that before they they find themselves in that situation absolutely because i i do see you know some of the questions that come up 
Uh, and I have learnt that when I'm first presenting the information that I really strongly at the beginning say there, this is not a what if, do not, uh, you know, like if you have a what if, just keep it in your head because it just, people are, if they're asking what if, they're actually in that reactive mode, they're not in that reflective mode. So I've made it really, you know, like strongly advise, you know, don't ask what if questions. But then, you know, through my work with this, even people have, I did a session the other day with a school that I hadn't been to before and really lovely little school and when I went there um, they have a challenging student and we all think that our students the most challenging you know nobody has it like we do sort of thing and that's pretty normal and so they invited me out there to present on the pupil free days and and the principal you know had supply teachers there and a mother there of um, one of the, of the actual student and it was just so powerful when I went through the presentation that at the end of it, the principal stood up and she said, you know, like it was really good that Nairi said this at the beginning about the what ifs, because as I was listening to her throughout the presentation, I had to keep reminding myself, what are all the good things we do? What are all the preventative, proactive things we're already doing? Look, I need to concentrate on that. So talking to her staff afterwards, it was just a really good um, experience that let's concentrate on the positives we're doing. And then so at the end, what the principal had, she had presents for all of her staff, like, you know, stickers and things like that. And the staff had to say one positive or proactive thing that this as a whole school do to actually then go and choose their present. And I just thought, oh, that's a great way to actually concentrate after such a heavy presentation, because it is heavy. And I do acknowledge that it, you know, people get really taken aback. Oh, what? I can't do that. Like, oh. So after that, such a heavy session that we ended off on that note. And I thought, you know, I need to take that to my other presentations, make that more clear about while you hear that what you can't do, think about all the positives that you do do yeah. that are, you know, that you're already doing and just highlight those. Hmm. Yeah, great. And... To wrap up this conversation, Nori, of course, I'm looking at your notes and I just love the last line and I'm not going to steal your thunder, but I think that it is just a great way to rethink how we work. So, yeah. I came up, I actually came up with that and that was when I was doing a lot of essential skill work um, and it was like when I reflected on my practices with staff, with um, incidents, I had to reflect and go, Usually when they went sour, it was about me um, coming in with that position of control. So I'd come in trying to control the situation rather than a position of care, as in, hey, mate, what's going on? So, you know, that tone and language and the way you stand just makes such a difference to whether a situation will escalate or de-escalate. Yeah, a position of care rather than a position of control. Mm. Yeah, that's a... Great, great note to finish on. So thanks, Nori. Now, you would be familiar with our fast five questions that, you know, we're not so fast on. Are you ready to play? I am. Great. So, Nori, when and where was your first teaching appointment? It was at Jindalee State School. I did my last prac there. And Steve Francis, who has um, his own consultancy business now, he actually said, I want to offer you a job next year. Wow. So, yeah, Jindalee State School. So, Nari, when you think about your work, what was the last thing that made you smile? I did a presentation today on um, teams 
and there was one person out of shot and as I was talking about individual behaviour support plans and how they need to be individual, not generic, because sometimes you read them and the person's done five in a row and they've left the person's name in, the kid's name from the prior one, previous one. And I said something about that and I just heard this laugh in the background and I knew who was out of background. We've all been in those situations where we've got to do so many things, we just sort of do a cut and paste. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> Uh, Nari, what's your best book or film recommendation? Oh, when I read this, I actually have two, and they're ones that I really remember. And the first one is The Four Agreements by Miguel Rios. Rios? I don't know how to pronounce that. And it's use your words impeccably, don't take things personally, don't make assumptions, and always do your best. I love that book. Um, and then Tuesdays with Maury by Mitch Album, And it's just... If you want to cry, read that book. It's just beautiful, absolutely beautiful book. I am familiar with Tuesdays with Mori. I oh. read it quite some time ago and it is a pretty moving yeah. moving book to read. And I I'm, haven't read The Four Agreements, so thank you for that recommendation. Mm. It's interesting too, having done the Fast Five questions, as educators we're really difficult in narrowing down to just one book or film. So many of us have had multiple. Anyway, great pickups. Uh, each time I talk to someone. Mm. What's your favourite quote? I've used this quote many a time over my last two roles. When we know better, we do better. There comes a point in time where you cannot say, I'm ignorant of that fact or whatever. You know, when we know better, we do better. And that's why we do reviews of things. Yeah, that's lovely. And as far as things to see in CQ, what's our best kept secret? I was going to say me in the actual thing, but I thought, no, that'd be too funny. Um, I reckon, oh, Great Keppel Island. You know, we don't use that. Being like in Rockhampton and your Pern, I'm sure your Pernites do, but Rocky, we don't use that as much as we should. It's such a beautiful place. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yep. Good recommendation. Well, thank you so much, Nori. Um, it's been a, a great conversation to have and I think an important one because mm. as you've identified so many schools right now are paying attention to this work and it's important work so I hope that by sharing this episode that it points people to the right information because we'll have links in the show notes as well that they can refer to and it uh, they might even use it as a conversation piece in their own schools mm, definitely that's a great idea yeah if you have suggestions or recommendations for future episodes or you'd like to give us the gift of feedback, positive or negative, you can email us at cqcommunications at qed.qld.gov.au. If you've enjoyed the show, don't forget to subscribe in your favourite podcast app. You'll find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher and Deezer. And if you know of an educational leader in central Queensland who may also enjoy listening to the conversations, Please help us spread the word by telling them about the podcast and forwarding the email that comes each fortnight with the show notes. Thanks, Nari. Thanks, Trudy. Great idea, this podcast. Thank you for listening to Central Queensland Region's Leading and Learning Podcast. We trust this conversation has given you the information and inspiration to lead 
so that every student in our region succeeds.